Hi, welcome to Tavs Two Sets. Today on the show, we have Ellen Wald. Ellen is a historian and scholar of the energy industry and Western involvement in the Middle East. Ellen wrote the book, Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power. And today we're talking about Saudi Arabia, oil, OPEC plus, and many other topics involving oil, US and politics. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hi, Alan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no problem. I thought we could start with just a little introduction. What's your background and what are you focusing on today? Sure. So my background is probably a little bit different from some of your other guests. I am actually a historian by training. I have a PhD in actually in American history, although my focus was really diplomatic history, foreign policy, and business history or economics. And I really looked at how American businesses abroad interacted in the diplomatic and foreign policy realm, uh, particularly how they di- interacted with American diplomats abroad. And Obviously, that kind of led me to the Middle East and to the oil industry in the Middle East, because those were the biggest businesses that were operating there. And that's really how I got into the whole oil scene was actually through through history and through my research there. And then I left academia, more also that, you know, there wasn't really a lot of opportunity in academia, to put it nicely. And I realized I had a lot to say and comment on contemporary things that were happening happening with the energy industry, both in the United States and abroad, and that I could really use what I learned from history to really add to the conversation about what was going on today. And basically, the rest is history. And I find myself really, you know, in the, the definitely the more contemporary side of things now. And I ended up writing a book about Saudi Arabia, especially because what really sparked the book that I wrote, which is called Saudi Inc. and uh, is available in any bookstore. Um, It was published in 2018. And I came up with the idea for it because in 2014, at the the end of 2014, when basically Ali Naimi crashed the oil market and that fateful Thanksgiving OPEC meeting, a lot of people were sitting around saying, the Saudis have to give in. They have to give in. They're not going to have enough money if if oil is this low. How can they possibly keep pumping oil and, you know, selling it at this low a price? And I realized that based on what I knew about Saudi, Saudi Arabia and its history, that that was the totally wrong approach, that there was no way the Saudis were ever going to give in because they could produce oil at such a low price that even if they were selling it for, say, 50 or $40 a barrel, they were still making so much more money than everyone else. And so they didn't feel a need to give in. They could just keep making money. And I realized that people didn't really understand this and that I wanted to write this book to explain where the Saudis were coming from and how they viewed oil and oil policy, because they have a very different view of it, I think, than both American or or European policymakers, but also from American and European companies. Because Aramco, their national oil company, is both like a big American company, like, say, Exxon. It's very much modeled after that. But it's also not like Exxon, because they don't, or at least they didn't until recently, face any kind of pressure from, say, shareholders. They didn't face any pressure to make sure their stock price was high. They could take a really long view of things. And they always had. And that enabled them to really have a lot of freedom to make choices about oil 
oil production and development and the oil market that were different from a lot of people. So that's kind of how I got into this whole thing and why I, I wrote my book. And basically, here we are today. Wow, that's amazing. That's a great transition you had there from academia into, you know, focus on current oil patterns and trends. And, you know, the political landscape with Saudi Arabia, I think you have a great background for that. And you're very advantaged given your background in history. I wonder if you could share a little bit of that knowledge with us with Saudi Arabia and OPEC and the US and the relations currently, because I know there is a big hype around the fist pump with the Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And some people who sort of know Saudi culture say that it was kind of a cold welcome. And I just wonder if you could go over a little bit of the relationship between the US and OPEC. Yeah, those are great questions. And I think it's a little tough to read a huge amount into the fist bump because I think both cultures want to read into it slightly differently. And then on top of that, you have the whole COVID thing where people were deciding that suddenly like fist bumping each other was better than shaking hands or kissing. So, you know, it could have been in that kind of thing. From the American sense, I think a lot of American, you know, pundits were very upset because Biden certainly gave the impression that he was somehow giving the okay to MBS, like basically saying, you are now okay, even though you, you know, probably ordered the killing and dismemberment of, you know, this Saudi journalist who was living in the United States, like, I'm fist bumping you and that suddenly like makes you okay. And from the Saudi side, that seemed like a very, probably a very cold welcome because they're used to, I think, much more effusive greetings. And, you know, uh, there's a lot more, you know, the, the hospitality is a huge thing there. And so that was maybe kind of the, the Saudis reviewing is like, wow, they're keeping the US, this US president at arm's length. This is not how they interacted with Trump. If you remember when Trump became president, like the whole family went to Saudi Arabia as like their mm -hmm. first state visit. And there was all of this like pomp and circumstance. And remember, they all stood around that weird orb thing. And <laughs> it, was, it was a little creepy. You got to admit that that whole thing was like way overboard. But that's also how the Saudis do everything. Like, Lots of stuff that is way overboard from what we in the West might consider. Like we would probably, we would consider it very garish, but that's the way they like it. Like if you go to the Ritz Carlton Hotel in Riyadh, there's like a hotel and, and conference center. And that's, by the way, the infamous Ritz where they held all those people who were supposedly like super corrupt. And so it was like the Ritz jail. But anyway, it's they've now cleared it out. It's no longer a jail, obviously. And that's where they hold their big international finance conference and stuff. And it's like the most glitzy, gaudy thing. Like think like Versailles kind of. So, you know, so, so you kind of have to look at it, I think, from both cultures. And then, of course, there's the whole like COVID thing on top of that. But I would say that there's so much fraught, like that the US-Saudi relationship has become so overwrought, almost an overanalyzed. And I think that there are, there are issues on both sides. First of all, you have the Saudi kind of issues, which are mostly they don't like to be criticized about anything. And especially they don't like to be criticized in public. So when the U.S. came out and, and criticized Saudi oil policy and they're like, we think you're doing the wrong thing by cutting oil production then that was seen as like a huge affront. They seem to think that nobody else has really like the right or the basis to criticize their policy decisions because that's like infringing on their national on their sovereignty. They're like we're a sovereign nation, we can do what we want. 
And I think they don't quite realize that in America, at least people don't have, don't see any reason not to criticize another country's decisions. Like that's just like what we do. We talk about everything and we give our opinion and we, we you know, we say that and that's, we, we don't see anything wrong with that. We don't think it's even impolite, let alone somehow infringing on someone else's national sovereignty, but they often see and are very sensitive to criticism of that type. Then we go from the America side, I think, and interesting that you asked this because this is something that I've kind of been thinking about and, and mulling over and may even be going to, to speak about this in, in a couple months at a, at a conference. I think that America has an overly sensitive view that the Saudis are always using oil policy to do something political against them. And I think this comes a lot from the 1973 oil shocks when they had this idea that OPEC and especially the Arab members of OPEC and especially Saudi Arabia embargoed the oil to the US and also raised oil prices and, and cut production as a way to like get back at the US for supporting Israel. And they never really realized, I think this was the dominant narrative in the US and the world. I think it's not really historically accurate, but I think that this, the effect of the oil shocks has left such a mark on American policymakers, American political culture. They now read politics into every oil policy decision. So remember back when Naomi crashed the oil market, it was all like the Saudis are trying to kill shale. Like they're trying to get us. And that's not exactly true. Like they were making an economic decision. They were making a decision based on what they thought would be best for their economic, you know, health in the future. And it turned out probably to be a good decision for them in the long run. But they weren't like out to get America. They weren't using oil to get America. And I think the same thing we saw recently where OPEC decides to cut production quotas by 2 million barrels a day, which when you actually like add up all the numbers and figure out who's going to cut what would probably only amounts to 1 million barrels a day. But somehow this was seen as a huge affront to the Biden administration because it was going to happen before the midterm elections. And this could make oil prices go up and gas prices go up. And everybody always blames the administration in power currently for high oil prices. It's some sort of psychological thing they always do. And so this was seen as like, oh, the Saudis, they don't like Biden or they don't like his criticism of, you know, what they did for Khashoggi or all of these things. Instead of saying, actually, this was a financial and economic decision that made a lot of sense for them and where they were and what their financial and economic goals are, as opposed to being like some kind of having some kind of like political purpose. So I think that that's a problem that hampers a lot of, you know, people in the West, especially the U.S. policymakers, is that they're always seeing what the Saudis do in the oil market as something political, when most of the time it's not. There may also be a political implication for it, but there's always an economic reason, and that's usually the primary reason for what they're doing. It's interesting you bring up capacity cuts because something I wanted to ask you about was when OPEC holds their meetings and they come out and they say, we're going to cut 2 million barrels per day or, or whatever. A lot of the time their production isn't meeting their current capacity anyways. At least that's my understanding. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Is that just job owning from OPEC or, or what is their, what are they doing there? <laughs> So OPEC definitely engages in some serious job owning, though I think that it's less, 
effective now maybe than it used to be. But they had this problem. You know, for a while, everyone was producing the most that they possibly could because everyone was, you know, all out producing. You had to sell those barrels. And so that's why we had such a big oversupply in the oil market for a while. But now what we've seen is even though production quotas are a lot smaller now than they used to be, is that there are a lot of countries that are suffering the effects of a lack of investment in their oil industries. And this is, of course, what happens when prices are too low for a long time. You know, you don't have enough money to make the investment that you need. And and this isn't part of the cyclical nature of of the oil industry. It is like a boom bust industry. Prices are high. People make a lot of money. They invest in more drilling and then they produce more. And then that causes prices to go low and then they have to contract because they don't have enough money. So, you know, this is what always happens. But some of these countries were big oil producers, like Nigeria is in a a serious problem. Uh, Angola is another one. A lot of them are African countries, not all, but who, you know, were kind of, you know, important oil producers, but now they can't keep up with their quotas. And so they're just underproducing by a lot. And so then, but OPEC keeps these quotas the same because their whole deal was based off of numbers from October of 2016, I believe. So they're always basing everything off of baselines from what countries were producing in October of 2016, which is probably fine, you know, in 2018, but we're now in 2022, almost 2023. So, you know, one of the things that I think OPEC really needs to do, which is a very difficult thing because it involves a lot of negotiation and they probably just don't want to deal with it because it could cause unnecessary fractures. But what they really should do is they really want to get rid of a lot of the noise that's in the market. And this is something that the Saudi oil minister has talked about, that there's a lot of noise going on in the oil market that is distorting prices from, and, and they're not reflecting what the actual supply demand situation is. If they could, say, come up with new baselines based on what capacity is now, as opposed to this like imaginary idea that they could achieve based on you know things that they produced in 2016, then the oil market wouldn't be so confused confused when they say we're cutting production by this amount. Well, they're not actually cutting production by this amount. They're cutting the production quotas by this amount and only a few countries will actually have to cut production. So if you say we're going to cut a million barrels a day of production because those cuts get distributed according to set ratios, that means that, you know, only really Saudi Arabia and UAE and Iraq and, you know, Kazakhstan, for example, will have to cut. And so they're only really going to take off the market like half of that. So, Mm -hmm. but the oil market, you know, that's not what the headline reads. And so you end up getting a lot of noise. So people think they're actually cutting a lot more than they really are. And I do think that, you know, people are catching on to this a lot more, but it still ends up creating a lot of unnecessary noise and potential for volatility as a result. That's really interesting. And I'm not sure how the market would handle that. And (laughs) it would be, you know, something to watch, I think for sure. Oh Um, yeah. I mean, if they could manage to actually like sit down at a meeting and redo it, it would be an incredible like feat of diplomacy. Because remember the whole group OPEC and now the OPEC plus, it's not like a majority rule situation where they vote and like, you know, whichever side has a majority wins. They operate by consensus. So everybody's got to agree. One person can hold up the whole thing. In fact, the UAE did that one summer. They held up for like a week because they wanted their baseline revised and they're an influential member and they 
successfully held things up, you know. So OPEC doesn't want to willingly take on a situation where that might occur. So, you know, but at the same time, they complain about there being a lot of noise. It's really interesting you bring that up because my next question that I had for you was actually, what does the power structure look like with OPEC and OPEC Plus? Because I think a lot of people, when they see OPEC, they think Saudi Arabia. And a lot of people, when they see OPEC Plus, they think Russia. And I wonder, what does that influence look like for those nations? Like, can the Saudis, can they really influence OPEC, given that it's a consensus? Or do they just kind of have to go with Mm. what other countries are saying? And does Russia have a big say in that as well? Those those really, really good questions and really good points. So thinking back to like just the OPEC group itself before it became OPEC Plus, Saudi Arabia was always the, I would say, one of the most influential voices and members of OPEC simply because not only does it have the largest reserves, although Venezuela technically says they have more, but it basically has the largest recoverable reserves, but it also has the best company and the easiest way of producing. So it has the most productive capacity. So even though Venezuela says it has 300 million, 300 billion, I can't remember exactly. Venezuela says they have a lot, they have more oil. Their oil industry was never, never could produce at the same rate as Saudi Arabia's can. So the Saudis can produce 12 million barrels a day of oil. They don't produce at this rate because they would strain their fields in an unnecessary way, but they could if they were directed to. So there's actually a law called the hydrocarbons law that, I mean, as much as like laws are laws in a country that is a hereditary monarchy that's run by royal decree. But the king has decreed this. It is technically what they would call a law that Aramco has to follow, which means that Aramco has to be able to produce at its maximum sustained capacity. They refer to it as MSC. They have to be able to produce at that rate, which is currently 12 million barrels a day for, I think it's like 12 months. And they have to be able to get up to that capacity within like a couple months of being directed to. And they consider that an an issue of national security. So that's like, that's why they have to be able to, but that doesn't mean they ever would want to do that because it's not healthy, it's not good for their fields, it's not necessarily good policy, but they could. And they've shown that they can produce that much. And so their ability to be able to ramp up or ramp down like that gives them an incredible amount of power in the group, in OPEC. And so, yes, it's consensus, but it's definitely the bigger producers have more influential voices. And sometimes they will go and and kind of put a lot of pressure on the smaller producers. Now, the smaller producers also have power because if they don't go along with it, then there's no consensus. So I think that they feel like they can often kind of use that power to maybe extract things that they want from the larger countries, like they could get aid or technology or or things like that. So it's not like it's just the big players and the little ones just follow along. They still have, you know, importance. So, so Saudi Arabia is the biggest productive, you know, biggest capacity, but Iraq, UAE are definitely up there. Kuwait is always an important player. Iran used to be a, a pretty important player until sanctions. And, you know, now they basically don't produce all that much or they don't, they don't have, they, they can't, you know, sell it on the free market on the, they have to sell it, you know, basically like smuggling. Venezuela definitely also used to be very important. And also in OPEC, the founding members also have a lot of weight in what they, you know, they, they carry a lot of weights. Venezuela is a founding member, for example, same with, you know, Saudi Arabia and, and Iraq. But UAE, 
Gabby has definitely become a much more powerful voice over the past, say, five years, mostly because they're expanding their capacity. Their country is very good shape financially. They don't just depend on oil. They have a huge financial sector and, and all sorts of other industries. And they've definitely been growing as well. Now, when you kind of expand the OPEC group to OPEC plus, yes, Russia is definitely the most important voice in that group. They're the third largest producer in the world and the second largest producer in the OPEC plus group. But Saudi Arabia has also elevated Russia to this position of importance because they know that Russia is very fickle and just reneges on things all the time. And so they've made a conscious effort to basically put Russia in a seat of power in order to basically keep keep them in the group. So that's why you saw Khalid Al-Fali was always with Alexander Novak at the meetings. Like they shared a car together. They walked into the room together. He sat next to him at the in a position of prominence at the press conferences. So that's kind of where, where that comes from. Russia is definitely the most important OPEC plus member. Kazakhstan is nothing to sneeze at, but basically Kazakhstan tends to go along with Russia. So you know, they have a lot of influence there. Wow, that's really interesting. Thanks for that. That's a lot of knowledge. And it's so hard to understand the ins and outs of that unless you study it the way that you have. I wanted to ask. I, I would just... say that, but I would I would also add one other thing. It helps to kind of be there and also observe the behavior in person. Like I don't think I would have realized the extent to which Saudi Arabia and in particular the Saudi oil minister, the amount of time and effort that they really put into cultivating this relationship with Russia had I not actually like seen it in front of me. You know, so you see them walk in on the red carpet together and you, you see this and you realize that first of all, the in-person meetings really do matter. You know, it's interesting they they were going to have their latest meeting was going to be in Vienna, but they've since moved it to virtual. So people have said it's really because the Saudi oil minister wants to watch a soccer game, but I don't know. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> but but there is a lot of kind of person to person diplomacy that goes on here. It's very kind of old school. Yeah, I have to agree. I've done some traveling myself just through Europe and various places, and it's amazing how much better of an understanding you can get when you're actually in a place. So I'd have to agree with that. Just before I let you go. I really wanted mm -hmm. to ask you one more question. Sure. And, and it's just about the Russian price cap that uh -huh. everybody's talking about. And I wonder how you see that going if NATO and other countries decide to go ahead and the EU decide to go ahead with the Russian price cap. How do you think that's going to shake out? And do you think that the Saudis are going to side with Russia given their relationship in OPEC plus? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I think a lot depends on the actual price cap number. And um, they haven't actually agreed on the price they want to cap it at. And Europe is having a really hard time with this because Poland and Latvia and Lithuania, all countries that have reason to fear Russian aggression, want a really low cap. They want $30 a barrel. But the other ones, the G7 nations, want somewhere between like $65 and $70 a barrel. And I think the European Commission is trying to get them to like a compromise at 60 maybe. But when you look at what Russia, the prominent Russian oil blend, Ural's blend is selling for, the discounts are so steep that it's really selling for like 55, I think, or maybe $52 a barrel now. So if Europe and the United States say, oh, well, the price cap is 60, well, that's basically meaningless at this point. Mm -hmm. it, it means nothing because most Russian oil is selling for less than that anyway. So I think it really depends on what the number is because if 
it's a high enough number, Putin's just gonna like make a joke out of it because he's already, you know, it, it's it's basically meaningless. So I think that that a lot depends on that, and I, I think the market definitely could experience some dislocation as a result. And Europe is gonna have a lot harder time sourcing oil, obviously, because the the sanctions go into effect the same day as the price cap policy, mostly because it's just gonna take them a longer time to get oil because Russia was really the closest source for them. But now if they're buying oil from the Middle East, it's going to take longer. And I think that that's not something that maybe the market or people watching the market have totally factored in. It's just the length of time it's now going to take for Europe to get crude oil and that they're going to have to pay higher shipping costs. Yeah, for sure. And that's a really interesting observation and maybe something that has been lost in the rest of the political shenanigans that have been happening Mm -hmm. with the G7, like you say, and all the other countries involved. With that being said, this has been great. I'm going to have to get you back on because I have so many more questions. <laughs> yeah, we'll <laughs> but, have to do this uh, again. It was really uh, a good good discussion. Yeah. And uh, I thought I would just give you an opportunity to share where people can find some of your content, maybe where they could buy your book if they're interested. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you can find me. I would say Twitter is probably the best place to follow me if you want to see my content. I'm often, you know, just tweeting out my kind of thoughts on various things and definitely articles that I've written or, you know, interviews that I've done. So that's at Energized Economy, E-N-E-R-G-Z-D Economy. So you can definitely find me there and, you know, send me a note, question, anything like that. My book is generally available in most places. Books are sold. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, probably get it in Canada on Indigo, I think. It's called Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power. And definitely look it up. Or if you have any trouble getting it, let me know so I can help out in that respect. And you can also listen to it on audiobook or get Kindle and it's available in hardcover and paperback. Awesome. That's amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and all the best. I know we've got a big year coming up in the oil market, so I'm sure we'll oh, yes. have lots to talk about. There is definitely a lot happening. I would count on that. Awesome. Thanks. Have a great evening. Hey, you too. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. Thank you.